beasts, fire, destruction, singing, worshiping, strange winged creatures, uh, a figure robed in white, a slaughtered lamb, a throne room. These are just some of the strange things that we find in the final book of the Bible, Revelation. If I were to ask you what you think of when you hear Revelation, what would you say? That's not rhetorical. What would you say? What comes to mind when you hear Revelation? Just first things. Apocalypse, okay? What else? Weird, yep. Confusion, darkness, end times, apocalyptic, okay, yeah. Apocalyptic literature, yeah. Uncomfortable, the end of the world, the apocalypse, I mean, I heard a lot of the, the you know, a lot of these things. For sure, Revelation is kind of this kaleidoscope of, of strange visions and scenes. It has inspired all kinds of, of commentaries and even fiction books and movies. Uh, and there's some crazy stuff out there on Revelation, trust me. Um, but it is rarely read and rarely preached on in churches. And in fact, even as we begin this sermon series, I recognize that the lectionary passages given to us conveniently skip the most difficult parts of this book. So many times when Revelation is preached on or written about, it's interpreted in a way that's actually not consistent with what the text is or what it's designed to do. For instance, some people uh, approach the text like it's uh, some secret to decode that predicts the end of the world. And so people, you, you know what I'm talking about, people try to map historical events and current events into it, making connections between sicknesses and wars and leaders uh, and, um, and, and the symbols found in Revelation. Like, oh, this event is happening. That, look, that's what Revelation is talking about. We're in the end times. Or others see it as this kind of message in a bottle or time capsule liter- uh, from the end of time, literally, literally describing what will take place. The problem with this kind of predictive approach is that it neglects the kind of work Revelation is and doesn't pay attention to its context. The other problem is that it can lead to, to the very thing that Revelation is trying to encourage Christians living in the midst of difficult circumstances to avoid stagnation and apathy. If one believes that wars and diseases or hostility between nations or natural disasters are simply just signs of the end times, then what's the motivation to work for peace, for creation care, for justice? If all the mounting crises are just simply a part of the end of history, then why try to deal with them? Jesus doesn't want a church sitting on the sidelines. Revelation is certainly future-oriented, but not to present a literal play-by-play of the end of the world, to reveal a heavenly view of present reality in light of God's ultimate dream. It represents a beginning of how to live in light of the ending. A beginning of how to live in light of the ending. And the hope is that over the next six weeks, looking at some passages of Revelation, will engage our imaginations, will give us a vision, a fresh vision of how to live now as the church of the Christ who died, who is risen, and who will come again. Let us pray.
God, open our hearts and minds to your word for us this day. We pray that it would take root there, grow us, transform us, that, that we might live for you and bear fruit for your kingdom. This we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, if you don't mind, I'm actually getting hot up here, so I'm going to go change. Uh, I think we're still fluctuating between like heat and AC, so I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to turn this, uh, turn this down. Thank you. Our scripture reading comes from uh, Revelation. Obviously, we'll be reading chapter 1. I just invite you to, um, to listen, and to listen with your imagination, too. A revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Christ made it known by sending it through his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the witness of Jesus Christ, including all John saw. Favored is the one who reads the words of this prophecy out loud, and favored are those who listen to it being read and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is and was and is coming, and from the seven spirits that are before God's throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, who made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and always. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, including those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. This is so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is and was and is coming, the Almighty. I, John, your brother, who shares with you in the hardship, kingdom, and endurance that we have in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and my witness about Jesus. I was in a spirit-inspired trance on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice that sounded like a trumpet. It said, write down on a scroll whatever you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned to see who was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven oil lamps burning on top of seven gold stands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw someone who looked like the human one. He wore a robe that stretched down to his feet, and he had a gold sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white as wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine brass that had been purified in a furnace, and his voice sounded like rushing water. He held seven stars in his right hand, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His appearance was like the sun, shining with all of its power. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, but he put his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, but look, now I am alive forever and always. I have the keys of death and of the grave. So write down what you have seen, both the scene now before you and the things that are about to unfold after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands, here is what they mean. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, the opening chapter of Revelation really reveals or helps us understand what we're dealing with and how to approach it. Revelation begins, as I just read, a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what soon must take place. Christ made it known by sending it through his angel to his servant John. A revelation. Now the Greek word is apocalypto. 
from which we get the word apocalypse. In English, the word apocalypse refers to cataclysmic end-of-the-world type event. In the Bible, apocalypse does not mean that at all. And I'll repeat, in the Bible, apocalypse does not mean that at all. In the Bible, apocalypse consistently refers to uncovering or revealing something that was hidden. Uncovering or revealing something that was hidden. For instance, in Matthew 11, Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and have apocalypsed them to little children. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to apocalypse him. So Jesus, in Matthew, describes God revealing something of the kingdom of God to those like little children as an apocalypse. God pulls back the curtain, in other words. God pulls back the curtain, and they see or understand something that was hidden. Similarly, Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, when he describes, recounts, encountering the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, he says, God was pleased to apocalypse his son to me. So an apocalypse in the Bible is a moment when God reveals something that was previously hidden. Maybe think about reading like a really good mystery novel and then reaching the climactic conclusion where there is some kind of event or discovery or confession that disrupts the way you'd been reading the book and seeing things in the story and all of a sudden you see things in the plot that you didn't notice before but that were there all along. Maybe you've even had some kind of experience in your life that God allowed or caused that disrupted your way of seeing. And all of a sudden, you could see things that you hadn't noticed before, but that were there all along. I remember when my first son was born and holding him for the first time, having this very strange moment, this, this vision when it felt like God was holding me close and smiling and looking at me the way that I was holding my son and smiling at him. Of course, God was always loving, but God revealed that to me in a new way in that moment. That's what the Bible means by apocalypse. So when John begins by saying an apocalypse or revelation from Jesus, he's talking about something revealed to him in a special divine way. And in his case, it's through a divinely inspired vision, an altered state of consciousness. He says, I was in a spirit-inspired trance on the Lord's day, and I heard a voice that sounded like a loud trumpet. These apocalypses happen in Scripture most often through dreams and visions, and so of course they're packed with strange symbols and, and imagery. I mean, think about how weird it is for you to try to explain your dream to someone else. Dreams bypass our conscious mind, and then we try to use our conscious mind to explain them to someone. The interesting thing about dreams in the ancient world is that instead of providing, uh, instead of providing interior glimpses into the self, which is how we understand dreams today, providing interior glimpses into the self, dreams were thought to provide external glimpses into what was really going on in the world. 
So when John talks about being in a trance or having a dreamlike vision, he's talking about, okay, this is a chance to see the world for what it truly is. A peek behind the curtain, if you will. A peek behind the curtain at the beast-like violence, injustice and oppression of earthly powers and empires over and against the glorious lordship of Jesus. He's taken in this dream out of this world, so to speak, in order to see its brokenness more clearly and to see Christ's glory more vividly. And the language that he uses to share and communicate this revelation is imaginative, symbolic. So this opening should be a signal that he's, he's tapping into a whole stream of apocalyptic tradition from the Hebrew scriptures that his readers would have been familiar with. And its building blocks are Old Testament images that act as hyperlinks meant to be explored. You know when you're on a web page searching, you come upon a hyperlink, you click the hyperlink, it takes you to a whole new website with, all this, with other content that's related. When Revelation, all the images and symbols are, most of them are hyperlinks to the Old Testament meant to be explored. So for example, from just this chapter one today, John describes this vision taking place in a throne room. Almost every single apocalyptic vision or dream in the Old Testament from Ezekiel to Isaiah to Daniel contains imagery of God's throne room. The prophet or seer is taken in a vision up to God's throne room to see the world from a heavenly perspective. So too with John. The references to the one coming on the clouds or uh, to the human one or son of man, the description of the human one with dazzling white garments comes right out of the book of Daniel when a messianic figure is vindicated over his enemies. See the connection there with the risen Christ? The number seven in the Old Testament is associated with completeness. Think about the seven days of creation. A voice like a trumpet connects to Exodus and the people hearing God's voice like a trumpet from Mount Sinai. Hyperlinks. Even the language describing Jesus as the one who is, who was, and who is to come Echoes, Revel- echoes Exodus when God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush and says, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. It's like Revelation is where all of these rich biblical images and themes and symbols and patterns are summed up, where they, where they converge to Jesus and God's coming kingdom and final victories. It's like John is saying, I've, I've seen a vision that this world, that this story, our story, with all of its symbols and meanings and stories, our history, despite our present circumstances, despite what we're seeing, it's headed somewhere. It's going somewhere. So here's how to live. So here's how to live. And that's another important component for us to, to recognize. In addition to being apocalyptic in the biblical sense, this is a prophetic letter. That means it's communicating God's perspective and purposes on something that's happening in real time. John is writing at a time when, when Christians were facing extreme, uh, extremely difficult stuff. He's on the island of Patmos because he's been exiled there. And so when he says he shares in the hardship, he knows what he's talking about. He knows Christians are, are wondering and, and asking, like, where is all this going? What is God up to now? What, a, what about Caesar in Rome? I mean, that powerful empire ruling through violence with a ruler who considers himself to be 
the Lord? What, what would Jesus have to say about all this? Consistent with the prophetic word in the Bible, John is already making a connection between what he saw and how it will offer God's point of view and therefore demand some kind of ethical response. Favored is the one, he writes, favored is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and favored are those who listen to it being read and keep what is written in it. Right away, there's a connection between what is being revealed and obedience and practice in day-to-day life. Readers are supposed to engage with these visions, not asking so much what they mean, but how they mean, and what kind of response is called for and how we live. As a letter, this apocalyptic vision addresses, of course, the real situation of Christians living in the Roman province of Asia, kind of modern-day Turkey at the end of the first century. John addresses it to the seven churches. And there are sections devoted in, in Revelation to each church. But the whole thing really is one relevant letter for all uh, the believers there in all of the churches. And some visions encourage uh, the, the, the churches to persevere amidst persecution or to remain faithful even in spite of false teaching, while others flat call out churches for being content and lukewarm in their devotion to Jesus because they're rich and they don't need anything. But the overall prophetic message is the same. Hang in there. Don't give up. Don't compromise. Stay faithful to Jesus and to being his witnesses. So it's comfort and challenge in light of God's rule over all things, which John is trying to, trying to show that it's more real and lasting than what they might be seeing with their own eyes. Which leads to one really important final idea this opening chapter introduces. The lordship the glory, the sovereign power of Jesus and how it relativizes all other claims to power and lordship and worship. See, Revelation doesn't just just peel back Rome and the other forces and power structures as evil. It peels back who Jesus is. Look at the, the images and the symbols and the language associated with God and Jesus in just this first chapter. God is described as the one who is and was and is to come. The Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, Alpha and Omega being the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn among the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's robed in glory and majesty. He shines like the sun with all of its power. He identifies as the first and the last, the living one. John is making it clear that no no matter what is unveiled with these visions, it's clear that no matter what else he sees, Jesus is more glorious and more powerful and no other earthly claim can compare. Jesus was before them and Jesus will be after them. Jesus is what matters and it's pretty clear right from the start who really is in charge. So Revelation is actually less interested in telling us exactly what the future holds and more interested in telling us who it is that holds the future. And it's Jesus. It's the risen Christ. And shouldn't that make all the difference in how we live right now? It's always a a rather strange sensation the day after Easter Sunday. I mean, when the service was over and the last car left the parking lot, Russia was still invading Ukraine. 
There were mass shootings that took place. Life went back to to life as usual, face to the grindstone, working, relationships ending, children and other people in various parts of the world going hungry, destruction continuing to, to march on, greedy corporations still bypassing ethics for profits. You know, early Christians felt that difference too. They felt that difference between being Easter people following the risen Christ and the realities of a world still damaged and broken. And yet, just like then, what we do now as the church matters. What we do now matters. Jesus' church is a part of the plan, not camped out on the, on the sidelines. So maybe, maybe Revelation helps us to uncover the brokenness around us more clearly. Maybe it reveals and helps us to see the glory and the power of our risen Lord more clearly and God's ultimate dream for heaven on earth. And maybe with that apocalypse, maybe by knowing the end of the story already, we begin to live differently now. I love what one commentator said. He said, it's hard to... It's hard not to become engaged with the present earthly life when a purposeful cosmic backdrop is revealed to lie behind it. It's hard not to become engaged with the present earthly life when a purposeful cosmic backdrop is revealed to lie behind it. Maybe we're challenged to to live more faithfully and courageously, pointed from, from seeking earthly security and power to God's kingdom. Maybe we're encouraged and comforted in the midst of all of the difficulties. Maybe instead of us decoding revelation, it decodes our reality. Provoking and reshaping our imaginations with its fantastic images so that we're motivated. So we're motivated to live courageously and faithfully and with endurance in the world as as witnesses to the one who defeats his enemies, who, who saves his people, who restores all creation. Let's live in light of that beautiful backdrop. Let's begin to live in light of the end. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.